Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. I tell you what, there's a lot of things you can get excited about in life. And, I mean, just jacked about and hooting and hollering about and screaming about and getting cheerful about and feeling prideful about. I mean, like, I don't know, football or things like that. You know, you could really get excited that you're, you know, a New England Patriot fan or something like that, but, you know, being a child of God is even better than that. As, as awesome as it is to be, to see the sixth Super Bowl, I've got this banner in front of my house, and I won't go far with this because otherwise you'll leave, but I have a banner in front of my house that says five times New England Patriots. I actually put out lighting like for Christmas, I put it out for the game. So my house was completely blue, and I had a flag on the front of it, and it said five-time champion. Well, my neighbors came by yesterday, because the flag is still up and will be until next August. The flag was still up, and they said, you know, you, it's not five anymore, it's six. You need to get yourself a new banner. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to hold off on that, because there could be a seven in front of this thing. So uh, I don't know, I'm just saying. But glad to have you guys here. Ladies, let me give it here a shout out if you went on the women's uh, retreat this last weekend. Let me hear you. Yeah. Come on, ladies. A little more than that. Man, because I heard it was incredible. It was awesome. Well, I'll give you one more shot at it, okay? All right. Ladies, yell out if you were on the women's retreat this weekend. Yeah, there we go. That's what I thought. Because I knew you guys were kind of crazy when you were there. I mean that you were having fun. Oh, I'm really glad that God showed up and you guys were able to encounter his presence and what God was able to do in your lives. And I think we're continuing to do that here today uh, because as we talk about manifesto, no matter where you're from and you've walked in here to the, for the first time, we all walk around with beliefs, morals, values, ethics, whatever you want to package it in. We have vision statements, plans for our lives. But a manifesto is something more than that. It's when you actually put the thing into action, where we're not just people that believe or have creeds, but rather it's when they, they begin to change the world around us. We begin to create the future that God intended for us based upon those beliefs. We begin to engage like, like God did in the creation story. God said, let there be, and there was. And that God gave us the power in the imagery of God in us to begin to create some of the elements of our future. Instead of fatalistically waiting for something to happen, but rather we've been called into partnership with God to live with manifesto. So we've been looking at this guy, Nehemiah, and I can't go through a whole review of it, but we, we discover he lives in a broken world like ours. And for him, the kingdom of God um, was a place where there was some hurting going on. And Israel was broken up and had been burnt and destroyed because of war. The walls had been broken down. Homes had been compromised. And that he gets authority from his king to go back and to begin to the restoration process. He gets the authority from the king to begin to see things change. But before just jumping into building, last week we learned that Nehemiah sought the power of the Holy Spirit to help him understand what needed to be fixed. That a lot of us, when we, we see a problem, we just jump into the problem and we fix it. Wives jump in to fix their husbands because they know exactly what's wrong with them. Husbands jump in to try to fix their sons because they think they know exactly what's wrong with him. And then people jump on Facebook and fix the government because we all think we know what's wrong with it. 
But we learn from Nehemiah that there's got to be a time when we allow the Holy Spirit to search us. Because what we learned was that before, before we begin to do the work that God has for us, we need to allow God to do his work within us. We need God to search us and to find out why we behave the way that we behave. We need the Spirit of God to give us insight on how to respond to situations in our own lives, but also in the world around us. He's got to do that work within us first before we can go out and fix someone else. Jesus talked about this idea about trying to pull the speck out of another person's eye when we still have a beam hanging out of our own eye. And he says, first, deal with this beam issue. Allow the Spirit of God to work in your life on, on what's bothering you so that you can go and begin to apply the grace of compassion and the truth of God in a, in a very successful kind of way. So Nehemiah allows that to take place. But now Nehemiah is ready to share and to engage his manifesto. He's, beginning, he's, he's at the point where it's time to talk to people about what needs to get done and to call them into action. And so we pick up the story in Nehemiah 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, speaking to the people and the leaders of the people, he said, you see the bad situation that we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates have been burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. See, that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is maybe to give us the bad news so that he can give us the good news. Any idea that God communicates to you just to condemn you, to make you feel bad about yourself, is not the pattern of God. It's maybe the part, pattern of our psyche. Maybe it's the pattern of religion. But God will only give us the bad news if he's already provided the good news. And so he allows Israel to see that you, you now see the condition of your marriage. You now can see the issue of your personality. You now, as a result of the Holy Spirit, can see there's some things that need to change in your life. But he goes on to say, but I've got good news for you because we're going to build together. You and I, God and us, are going to build together and we're going to remove the reproach, the division that's, that's whether it's internal or it's in a marriage or whether it's in relationships or even in a nation. So the Spirit of God doesn't come just to bring us the bad news and to dangle us over the threat of hell. I mean, that is an archaic, limited and narrow perspective about what God wants to accomplish. But rather, God gives us the bad news so that he can provide us with the good news so that our lives can be radically transformed. So Nehemiah announces that to people. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's word which he had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So Nehemiah kind of does what the Holy Spirit does inside of us because we learned that his name means Jehovah is our comforter. He does that work that he does in us and he says, let us arise, let us build, let us do this thing. And the response of the people was, yeah, let's do it. Let's rise up. And then they say that they put their hands to the good work. I don't want you to miss that last statement because it's really important. So they put their hand to the good work. See, just because you're busy, just because your calendar's full, just because you're going here and there, just because you're successful, doesn't mean 
that you're doing a good work. Just because you're doing your work good doesn't mean you're doing the good work. It's totally different. And I think as Americans, we pride ourselves on the quality of the work that we do. And we see as Christians that we should be the best employees anybody hires. And it really is. It's our, it's our ethic. It's our, if we represent Christ not only through our conversation, but also how we do our jobs, when we show up at work, how we handle ourselves at the, uh, the water cooler. Do we still say that? At the water cooler. How we, how we handle ourselves with um, authority in the workplace and what kind of quality of work we do. But that's not all that we need to look at. We need to look at, is my life about doing the good work? Am I allowing myself to be a part of what God is doing? Or am I just a busy person? I, I, I think there are times in my life where I, I'll, I'll finish my day and I'll go at the end of the day and I'll look and I'll be like, well, I met with this person, I did that, and then I worked on that. And, then I, and I'll feel really personally affirmed because I had a good hard, long day, and I worked. But what we're hearing here is, is that's not the criteria. The criteria is, but did you do the good work? Were you involved in something that, that, that involved God? Were you, in, were you doing what you were doing the way that God would want the work done when you were talking to that person, when you were when you're relating, uh, uh, when you were on the job, or when you were at home parenting? I mean, isn't that one of those places? I mean, just because you're a dad doesn't mean you're doing the good work. Just because you're a mom, you know, we, we just assume that once you become a parent, you're a good parent. And it really isn't the case. I mean, some of us suck at it. I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, some of us, we think, well, being a parent is, you know, it's hard and all that. But we got to look at ourselves and say, listen, am I just parenting? Am I just this kid's dad? Is that all the qualification that go on in this task? Or am I doing a good work? Am I doing God's work? Am I doing the work of God God's way in my daughter's life or in my son's life or, or wherever the relationship may be? Just because we're busy just because we're successful doesn't mean we've got our hand to the good work. Proverbs 16.2 says this, and we'll use this verse a couple times today. It says, all the ways of a man, of a man are pure in his own eyes. You know, I, you know, it's the most important thing in the world that I'm working on. And that's, that's important. And every one of us in our own eyes will, will assume that what we're doing is good. But we find out that we need God's spirit to kind of help us discern between what we're preoccupying ourselves with and, and what we're spending our time with. He goes on to say, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. This means more than just doing a good job or doing your work good. It means finding out what is it that God's doing? What does God wanna do in your marriage? As a dad, are you doing the good work? But just, just having a child and putting a roof over their house does not define the good work. There's more that needs to be done. There's, there's a God thing that needs to be accomplished in, in the life of our families and the world around us. I warned you last week that we were going to see something pop up a couple times in the story, and throughout the rest of the story it will pop up. 
But not everyone is going to be happy about you following after God. So whatever decision you make about God and about Christ in your life and about doing the good work and having a manifesto that follows after the divine plan of God for your life, not everybody's going to be excited about it. And this is the second time that we're going to encounter opposition in this story. So they've just announced that we're going to do this good work, and, and, and then they get up and they begin to put their hand to the good work, which is a very important thing, and we'll look at that. But as soon as they let the word out, as soon as it gets typed out and tweeted out, immediately opposition rises up. In Nehemiah 2.19, And when Samballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and they despised us. What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? See, others are going to mock you. Whenever you decide that you're going to have a manifesto or live your life according to the principles of God, people are going to mock you, and they're going to despise you. But we learned this a couple weeks ago, that the kingdom of God never comes to a person who's waiting for public consensus. If you're waiting for the rest of the world to applaud you because you're going to follow after God, that you've decided that you're going to align your life your behavior, your relationships according to the principle of God, if you're waiting for public consensus to happen, if you're waiting for Facebook to all of a sudden to like Jesus and following after him, you will never accomplish anything for the the kingdom of God because consensus will never occur on this planet. And so they are attacked, they are mocked, and they are despised because of their their new resolve, their manifesto to follow after God. But I'm going to, so they, they, Sam Ballard and all of them send out emails, send out all kinds of stuff, saying that you guys are a bunch of fools, you're losers, you're not scientific, you're, uh, you're, you're moralist, whatever they could possibly have used. They sent it all out, you guys are gonna fail, you'll never accomplish what you're going to do. So Nehemiah, Responds. He speaks a response or he writes a response to the criticism that he's getting from the people around him. Now, I'm going to read you Nehemiah's response to their opposition. But you're not going to like it. You are not going to like his response. Uh, and I'll get to the reason why. Nehemiah says, So I answered them and I said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion, no right or memorial in Jerusalem. He comes right out and he says, we're going to succeed and God's going to give us success, but you're going to get none of it. You're not going to have any part of it. You're not going to be included in it. You're not going to have any memorial in it. I mean, you're not going to be a part of what God is doing. And to the opposition of the project, Nehemiah makes it very clear, very distinct, makes a very clear distinction that you will have no part of this success. We need to remind ourselves of this because we live in an America that doesn't like this kind of distinction. You're in and you're out. We don't like walls, we don't like barriers, we want to be inclusive. We want to do all these things. And I get it. 
And a lot of it looks like it's the heart of Christ. And our, in laying aside the political issues, because I, I would have to break it down on so many different levels, but we are raised in a society that thinks that Christ is a universal blessing for all mankind, and that we are universally the sons and daughters of the living God. That sounds Christian, doesn't it? And Nehemiah sounds very unchristian about drawing a line in the sand, saying, listen, you know, we're a part of what's going on here. We're gonna, be, we're gonna do the work that needs to be done here, but if you're not gonna be a part of the work that's gonna be here, you're gonna have none of the success. The Apostle Paul even said something like that in Timothy. It says, uh, if there's any men among you who don't work, don't feed them. Because a believing man who does not work is worse than an infidel. Now, people back in the first century got that. But in America, we don't get that. That sounds very unchristian to draw any kind of distinction that you have to participate in order to experience the blessing of something. We live in a culture that wants to disperse entitlement to everyone, and I would like to, <laughs> believe me. I would like to, I'm not against that idea either. I think everybody should get some of everything, you know? Just don't take mine. Okay, so we need to think that through. But the kingdom of God is not dispensed upon universal, indiscriminate response. It is offered to all, but it is encountered by few. I mean, Jesus said, broad is the way of destruction. I mean, it's like, there's this big way to screw up life. But it's like, listen, this decision to follow after me, he says, let's not fool ourselves. The public is not responding to this. It will never be a human consensus. But let's also not fool ourselves. Let us not expect anything from God unless we respond to what God is doing. You may think this sounds very unchristian, but I'm gonna prove it's not unchristian because Jesus said it. In Mark 8, 34, and Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. It's like, whoa, Jesus. That sounds, that's a little rough. You're telling me I have to come to a place of, of decision. I've got to come to a place where I decide whether or not I'm going to be a part of this restoration work of God or whether or not I'm not going to be a part of it. And he's, he's very clear. Jesus in another place says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, he was known for putting out these, these sayings that kind of just struck you because he wanted everybody to understand with clarity what, what was going on here. He didn't want anybody to confuse what Christianity was. He says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you'll have nothing to do with me. Let that man expect nothing from God. Like, Wow. What about the universal idea that God loves everybody? God loves everybody. God offers love to everybody. God offers freedom and forgiveness and even success to everyone. But we gotta decide whether or not you wanna be a part of what God's doing. It's not just sprinkled 
little pixie dust over all the humanity. You've got to make a choice of whether or not you want to be a part of it. And I know that sounds very unchristian, but it's always been Christian. The Apostle Paul said this way, Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And that's where most pastors read the quote. And then we'll, we'll conveniently put a dot, dot, dot there. That means I've kind of given my permission not to read the whole verse. And sometimes, you know, I do that because maybe there's some things in the rest of the verse that bring up a different idea that I don't want to get into at this moment. But you can't dot, dot, dot that. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who, what? Who are homo sapiens on the planet? Who are, who are living on the third, third planet from the sun? Everybody that has a body temperature between 96 and 99? Or, I mean, w- w- what is it? For those who love God. That I believe everything works together for good to those who are responding to the love of God. It didn't say perfect people. It said to those who are, who are part of that love of God, loving God, and choosing to respond to God. And he says to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are according themselves, bringing their, their lives in accordance with the purpose of God. Again, not perfect people, but people who are aligning, bring themselves into accordance with the work of God. They experience it in their lives. Remember, it's offered to all. It is encountered by few. Now, please, don't don't go on a rabbit trail. What about those who haven't heard Jesus? What about those in other religions? I got this massive, beautiful answer for all that. I just can't address it right now. But just know this that God wills that no man perish. It is the heart of God that nobody, in any tradition, culture, religion, whatever it is, God loves the world. So if they haven't heard about it and they haven't been presented it, will not God do that which is good, you know, and fair and all that? But that's a, that's a whole different thing, and we could talk about some theology at another time. But, but there's this, this idea of being all in, of deciding that I'm going to be a part of what God's doing that is absolutely necessary. And Nehemiah draws the line very distinctly that, that if you're not a part of what God's doing, you should not expect anything from him other than the continual beacon of coming to me all you are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I was a Navy guy, still am a Navy guy, probably more of a Navy I would I would go today if the Navy would take me. I would be on hunter killer. I mean, our killer hunter subs, man, I'd be out there. I would love them. And if you have any way to get me back in, please let me know. But I would love to do it. But you know, there was that thing, that buoy outside of Charleston Harbor when you get way out there, and that buoy just sits there, and it constantly has a little blinking light on the top of it. And when we would pull in on the, on the USS Sierra and we'd pull into Harbor here in Charleston, you would always look for that, and it always remained there, and it always stayed there. See, the love of God, the call of God to every uni- any individual on the planet will always be there as a buoy in troubled waters inviting us to him. But we have got to decide to respond to the navigation. We can't just, just say, hey, there was a buoy. We must be on track. We must, we must be exactly where we're supposed to be, but rather we need to respond to what God's doing. So, so what does it look like to be all in in this story? and then kind of learning from it 
in our lives? Because I, I think I've probably piqued your interest. It's like, dang, I thought everybody was a child of God. Uh, no, we are all the creation of God, but we're not all children of God. I can't believe, why do I gotta be this preacher? I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I, sometimes it stinks to be so doggone honest about this stuff. Because I could, we could build a much bigger church if I just universalize everything and say, listen, you're all children of God, you're awesome, you're amazing, and God loves you just the way you are. That is a crock. That is a crock. I don't even love the way that I am, you know? I mean, I know what's wrong with me, but, but as many as receive him, we're told in the Gospel of John, to them he gives the power to be the sons and daughters of God. We were born in the image of God. We are God's creation. But the, but the call of God is to, to everyone and invites us to respond. So listen to what it looks like to be all in in Nehemiah 3. I'm going to butcher these guys' names. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers and the priest and built the sheep gate. So they're starting to get to the work. They consecrated it, and they hung its doors. And then they consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. And next to them, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar and the son of another dude. And the sons of Hashanah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams, and they set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Now, why are they fixing the gates? Why are they fixing the walls? I mean, isn't it about fixing the home? Because the homes were within the walls. And they were experiencing reproach. But the walls were necessary to protect the homes. Establishing this boundary is the first step in restoring the home. See, they could go and say, wow, my house is a mess, it's all been destroyed, and they could go fix their house, or they need to start first with the boundary and establish the boundary, fix the boundary, and then they can do the work. Isn't it the age-old argument? Do you dust first and then vacuum? Or do you vacuum first and then dust? It's always been a quandary. You know, apparently there's some new, new research out that you vacuum first, then wait 30 minutes, and the dust will have settled, and then you dust your house. Well, you know what's, what's kind of silly is that we all just want to fix our houses, but we're not going to fix the boundary that defines and protects our house. So they realize they've got to hang these gates, and they've got to get to the wall before they can, they can begin to do the work in their homes. You see, establishing is the work that they're doing. Their first work is that they establish their work. They establish boundaries. Again, in our culture, we don't like boundaries. We don't like labels. I mean, we've been told that that's bigotry of, on every kind of level. If we define something as good or bad, regardless of what it is. We've been told, no, 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 there's no more boundaries. 
You know, but the moment you don't have boundaries or definitions or you establish your work, there's no way you can build your home. They establish their work. And I love the word establish. I don't know how often you get to use it, but establish is a manifesto kind of word. And it means this. It means to set up, to show something to be true and to establish and achieve permanence. To establish something means that you are proving it to be true, that you are achieving permanence in it, you're setting something up. And so whether it's a country, whether it's a community, whether it's a company, or even a church, I guess even a family, or even a marriage, there's a point when the idea and the belief has to be set up where it has to be established, shown to be true, and it has to achieve permanence, that the work has got to be established. And I believe in America we have a thousand creeds and a million beliefs. But I think for us as Christians, we have all these beliefs and all these ideas about God, but have we established the work? Have we set the work up in our marriage? Have we set it up in our parenting or in our, in our relationships? I think it's incredible that the word establish comes from an old Latin origin, means to stable. It's when a powerful idea is given a home. That beautiful, powerful horse that's it's when it's finally stabled, meaning that it's given a place of permanence where its power can be utilized, called upon, and then it's given a stable. And so the very first work that these guys do is to establish the work. See, it's no longer just an idea for them, but they establish it to be true, and they begin to set it up. And the story says they do two things to establish the work. They consecrate it, and then they laid its beams, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Now, we'll take a look at these two, but the second one, and they laid its beams and set its doors and bolts, is repeated like five times in this story. Now, I'm not a real good construction guy. I mean, I'll, I'll fix what I gotta fix around the house if I'm told enough times. I'll, I'll get around to it and I'll finally fix it. But in, but in this story, the detail of how they built the gate, how they did some of the work, is repeated over and over again. Because I think God's trying to communicate something to us. They consecrated the work. Meaning they established what they were going to do and who they were doing the work for. They weren't just doing work to do work. They consecrated their work. They said, we're doing this for God. We're doing God's work for God's people. And we're doing God's way. They, they let everybody know that this is what we're about. And this is why I'm doing it. And I'm consecrating it to God. Now, some of us have uh, consecrated our work to fame, to wealth, to popularity, to success. That we've, but we all consecrate ourselves to something. We take our lives and we say, I am doing this because, and then you fill in the blank. But what they did right away was they, they began this work 
and they consecrated this work to God. It's like, I'm going to do marriage. I'm doing this marriage not only for me, not just for good sex, not just to have children, not just to have a nice home or not to be lonely, but we are consecrating this relationship to God and that we are going to do it God's way. That's a big part of it. And so let me ask you, have you consecrated what God's doing in your life? You know, and, and when they went to work and consecrated, it wasn't just like this guy just kind of standing over the side. Okay, consecrate it. Man, they used to bring out the oil and sling it all over the place. They probably got somebody on some kind of instrument and, that I will not imitate, you know, in public. You know, they probably got somebody singing over here and, and you know, they got a couple of priests dancing around in front of it and they're doing this consecration work and it's like, it, consecration is not only a private act but also it's publicly revealed. It's like, man, they are, they are about God. Uh, and, and I will get to something else later. I am so EDD, sometimes my brain just wants to run off on other things, but you'll just have to forgive me on that. Then they laid the beams and set its doors and its foundations. See, they put the foundations necessary to protect and preserve the work that they were going to do. Let me ask you this really tough question. Have you established the meaning of your life? I mean, they put this beam in place, and I researched it. Uh, there's nothing in the Hebrew language that would tell me whether the beam was a footer or it was a header. But since they were talking about hanging things, I'm going to guess, like in every house, there's a load-bearing wall or a load-bearing beam. That beam has got to be laid first. It's got to be put there first before everything else gets hung over it or off of it. See, they established the foundations in order to continue with the work. Have you established the meaning of your life? Have you laid the beam of what you are about? Have you established your relationships? Have you established your home and your work? I mean, have you put that beam in place? Have you consecrated and said, listen, this is about God. It's about what God wants to do in my life, and I'm establishing his word as the load-bearing wall in my life. And I'm going to put that in place first. If you're single here, you're in a great place. I know it can be lonely at times. I've been single a couple times. Um, but, you know, if you're single here, you have a great opportunity because you get to still choose that foundation that, you, that you're going to put in place. And, and, and if you're just dating a dude that doesn't know what his beam is, if you're dating a girl that is not load-bearing because she has the word of God in her life, then get out of that relationship. But you may be in a marriage where that was never established. But remember, Jerusalem had already been built once and destroyed once. They took the materials of rubble, they took the materials of the king's forest, and they did the work of restoration. So if you're in a marriage where things got broken down, that's exactly where Nehemiah is. He's not building a new city. He's restoring a broken one. And that God wants to let you know that if you want to restore your marriage and your relationships, whether it's with your children or with your friends or whoever it is, you've got to consecrate it to God and you've got to put the beam in place. God's word, his truth, his principles, and begin to hang the relationship 
off of those things. See, a lot of us are trying to establish something, but it's not, a, it's not connected to God. Um, a lot of us are working hard and failing at establishing anything. So some of us are trying to establish that we're smart, that we're better than our brothers, establish that we have purpose or meaning, or that we're strong or fast. We, a lot of us are busy trying to establish stuff, but are we trying to establish the kingdom of God in our lives? And then a lot of us are, are working hard and it's trying to establish something, and we're just not able to do it. Proverbs 24.3 says, By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By understanding God and understanding his word, that we begin to put the beams, we begin to hang the, the doors and the bolts and, and the locks and all the things that need to be put in place in this wall. He says, and by knowledge are the rooms filled with precious and pleasant riches. There is hope, but is but it's not without consecration. There is a promise, but it is not without yielding. I mean, anybody who comes up to you and says, man, you know, there's hope for you. I would ask them, why? What beam are you hanging that door on? There is hope but it doesn't come without consecration, about dedicating our lives to God, about presenting our lives to God and saying, God, I want to be a part of what you're doing, and I'm going to align my life with what you're doing. There is a promise from God that he will cause all things to work together for good, but it is not without yielding and yielding to his will. Jesus says, unless you pick up your cross and follow me, yeah, this doesn't go any further. That's so hard, isn't it? But let's not give up because it's hard. The heavy lifting has already been accomplished by, by Christ on the cross. But we are going to have to make the difficult choice. And I know our culture doesn't like difficult choices. That we're going to die to self. That we're going to consecrate ourselves to God and then begin the good work of establishing his kingdom in our lives. Proverbs 16, 2 said, All the work of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord. Consecrate your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. They'll be set up. They'll, achieve, they'll be proven to be true, and they will achieve permanence. That's what I want in my life. But there is this committing your work to the Lord that has to happen first. So ask yourself, and let me, let me ask you, do, do people know that you are established in Christ? Do your kids know? I mean, if we pulled your kids out and said, listen, um, what's your dad consecrated to? Um, do they know? Do, do your coworkers know? Does your church know that you're consecrated to Christ? I gotta be honest with you, I don't know. Some of you maybe, but I don't know. We do a good job of non, either being noncommittal or just not really showing it. 
this is going to be a terrible, you're going to think this is a terrible illustration, but I mean it in absolutely the most positive way. Do you know what October 11th and 12th are? It's a kind of a holiday in this country. Um, and I had to write it down to make sure I didn't say it wrong. It is National Coming Out Day. Regardless of where you stand on LGBTQIA issues, I would guess that they have experienced a heightened sense of awareness of establishing where they stand and what they believe. This is not a moment where I'm either condemning or anything like that against it, not at all. Matter of fact, I'm using them as an example. Is that people in America have guts to come out about what they believe and what they hold to be true. Jesus even said, I would rather you be hot or cold, but lukewarm, I'm just going to spit that out of my mouth. You know, everybody in America has guts to come out. And whether or not they should or not, that's not even an argument. I like everybody feeling a sense of dignity. Okay? But everybody in America has the power of coming out except for Christians. We've been told to shut up. We've been told, get in your place. You guys screwed it up. We've been told that we're not supposed to say what we believe. Do you know 80% of millennials believe it is offensive for Christians to share their faith? 80% of millennials think it's immoral for Christian people to share their faith. But yet everybody can declare what they are. I'm just telling you it's screwed up. We will put it in our place and like good little children, we're staying there. I'm not talking about let's return to, to bigotry. I'm not talking about to returning to judgment and standing on soapboxes or any of that stuff. I'm all for coexisting with people in harmony and giving dignity to all human beings who are created in the image of God. But I think we dare say with Joshua, as for me and my house, I have the guts to serve the Lord. And I'm not going to be quiet about it. Now, if anything short of that, you may have a belief, you may have a creed, um, but I'm going to question whether or not you have a manifesto. And that doesn't mean you won't be going to heaven but it will challenge whether or not you can create the future that your life needs and that your children need. If you were to pull one of my kids up here, and I'm not better than anybody else, I just follow the plan. They will tell you, oh, he loves the Patriots. Oh, he loves the Subaru. You know, and they'll tell you all the things that I'm passionate about. But they will tell you about my relationship with God. They will tell you what my manifesto is. They will tell you about the beam that is over our door. They will tell you about consecration. And it's not because I'm a better than person. I think if you've been here for an amount of time, your, your, your jaw drops on how, how, how far below I am as a, as a pastor, as a preacher. But that doesn't matter to me, because my 
doors are not hanging on public approval. They're hanging on a beam that says to as many as receive him, they become the sons and daughters of the living God. And I just decided to follow that. And I consecrated my life to it. So let me ask you the hard question. Do your kids know that you've consecrated yourself to God? Next week, we're going to have baptism. And baptism uh, in our second service, it's not a justice ceremony of the church. Most of us could say, well, uh, it is a, um, it's a sacrament. That's what it is. Well, let me just take it a little bit further than that description because those descriptions have lost meaning to us. It's a moment of establishing. It's a time when we consecrate and we lay the beam in front of the Sambalats and the Tobias and the Gershoms and all the others that have an objection to what we believe that we're willing to say to the world and the world around us, our family, to our children. Maybe our children are the only ones paying attention, but they need to know that we have consecrated ourselves and that we have made the decision as for me and my mind, as for me and my life, as me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord. That we're gonna come out with pride that we are the sons and daughters of the living God. And with God's compassion and truth, we're gonna live valiantly in front of the world around us. And we're going to experience the restoration of God in our lives. And it is for every single one of us. The call is for all of us, but only a few of us will experience it. Because only a few of us will choose it. And God will not move the line for you or for me. God won't say, yeah, well, I'm just gonna do it for him, even if he doesn't want it done for him. No. We have got to decide. We have got to consecrate. So let me invite you that if you've not established that fact yet, next week is it. And right after our service, one of our pastors will be in the back at the guest services, and you can sign up and be a part of that moment. Maybe you've been walking with God for a while. You've been doing the church thing, and you were baptized like me as a Catholic. You were, you were like, you know, like, eight weeks old when it happened, you don't really remember it. And you don't remember you personally laying the beam, you putting it there, and you hanging the doors. Maybe this would be a time for you to renew your faith. Maybe there was a time when you just, I was into that, but I tell you, Paul, I fell away from it, but I hear it now, I hear what you're saying. Well, maybe it's a time for you to use baptism as a, a reconsecration of your life back to God. So let me encourage you to declare God in your life. Father, we enter into this moment as we come and we receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. God forbid that this would be a habit that we have or that this would be a moment in a church service. But as often as we eat and we drink this cup, we proclaim, we consecrate, we declare, we establish that Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. And upon this foundation and on this beam that has been laid, all life is hung and your kingdom comes into my life. 
So, Father, we enter into this moment with you. We cross the line. We come out and declare that you are our Lord. Let me invite you to enter into the sober, defining moment with God.